Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at JMU. I'm Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic, and joining us today is Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director. Hi, Abe. How are you? Doing well, Kara. How are you today? I'm doing well, all things considered. All things considered. We also have with us a recent JMU graduate and Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic, Ethan Gardner. Hi, Ethan. Hi, Kara. How are you doing? (laughs) Good. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today is Delegate Skylar Van Volkenberg, who was elected to Virginia's House of Delegates in 2017 and represents Virginia's 72nd District. He sits on three committees, Privileges and Elections, where he chairs the Elections Subcommittee, Education, where he chairs the Standards of Learning and Standards of Quality Subcommittee, and General Laws. He's a graduate of the University of Richmond and has a pu- and has been a public school teacher in Henrico County for 12 years. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Delegate Van Volkenberg. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about democracy and civics. So I wonder if you could start this morning by telling us how you were first motivated to become civically engaged and why you ran for legislative office. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the question, right? And, uh, you know, I will, I will say that civic engagement um, came naturally to me because it was kind of a thing that my family prioritized and thought was important, you know, going back to when I was a young kid and my uh, mom taking me to the polls, but also, you know, like my great grandmother being a delegate for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And, and so uh, fam- our family has always valued and thought politics were important. And so, uh, you know, I, I just so ended up becoming a history major and then going into teaching and have spent the last 15 years teaching uh, civics and government. You know, I've also taught history classes, but really civics has been at the core of, of my professional life. And so uh, that my kind of civic engagement was largely pinned into teaching. And you know, some of that was uh, time. I was having three children and, and trying to raise them uh, in the kind of decade before I ran for office. Uh, but it was also where I thought I was could be the most effective, where I could have the most impact, getting kids to care about government and democracy and voting and being engaged. And, uh, you know, I, that changed and, and kind of my broader involvement changed uh, with the November 2016 election. And, you know, that was really the catalyst, not the cause, but the catalyst of me deciding to run for office uh, when Donald Trump was elected. I, I was very disappointed. I, I don't think this would surprise anybody, was not a fan of his. And, and so when he ran, I thought, well, you know, what else can I do? And that didn't naturally lead itself to running for the House of Delegates, but it, that was kind of the short term. What could be done was we had state elections coming up in 2017 and I asked about our local races and people said, well, why don't you think about running? And, you know, if it had just been the election of Donald Trump, I wouldn't have run because I don't think that that's a good reason to run for office. But the real causes were kind of threefold. One is I had seen, especially since the Great Recession, the the state kind of withdraw from funding public education. They made cuts in 2009, which were maybe understandable at the time, but they hadn't restored them. And, And I was seeing that impact even in Henrico County, which has one of the better school systems in the county uh, or in the state. Uh, The second reason was uh, kind of social issues. I saw a legislature that was wildly out of touch with the public, you know, everything from rejecting a judge because of the sexual orientation to the, you know, the the famous transvaginal ultrasound bill. 
And then last was uh, kind of the health of our democracy. And I saw a system where you had a heavily gerrymandered state legislature. We had, I think, some of the worst voting laws in the country. And so those those things caused me, those were the reasons why I ultimately ran for the House of Delegates. And then that's what I ran on. And, you know, here we are three years later uh, and two elections later. And I'm, you know, still teaching civics because I think that's, you know, that's that's my life pursuit is to get people to be in, to, to care about being engaged. But I'm, I'm also a delegate in the state legislature. I love how you kind of address your teaching as helping students to care. Um, I've been teaching political science now for about 10 years, mm-hmm. and I've always loved having classes where, especially in the introductory courses, where where students um, are there because of a general education requirement. And, inc- and, and, and by the end of the mm-hmm. semester, um, they do care. And I feel like that can be life-changing for students. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think one of the things about your government teacher in high school is they can be the teacher you remember the most uh, for one of two reasons. They're either the worst teacher you've ever had and they make you hate government or they're the best teacher you've ever had and they make you love government. It's kind of interesting how nobody has a civics teacher where they, they just feel like eh about. And, and I think that's because you really do have a powerful capacity to teach them why it matters. You know, government seems so daunting to kids and I think one of the biggest barriers to people being civically engaged is, um, is cynicism or a feeling of helplessness. Uh, but the more active they become, the more that they realize you can make change and the more that you realize it is comprehensible and it is something you can wrap your brain around. And, you know, I think one of the things that I like most about teaching civics is you can make it active. You make them active participants. You, you lay out an issue, you, you, you have them go research it, go see how the different branches of government or the different levels of government attack it. And you, they come up with their own ideas and then they figure out where they stand and they, they put those ideas against their peers' ideas or against professionals' ideas. And what they start to realize is how empowering that is. And so, you know, I do the We the People program, which is a national-wide competition, civics constitution competition. And when kids are finished with that and they've gone toe-to-toe with other classes and they've, they've ran their ideas against experts in the field, there's this real sense of, I can go out and make change. And and, and that's what you want, right? I mean, I, you know, whether they're a Democrat or Republican uh, or anything else or, or, or how they end up voting or how they end up engaging is, is not really something that matters to me. But just the idea that they can go do it, I think, is what's just super empowering about teaching civics and teaching it, you know, uh, well or hopefully well. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it seems like some of the same students that will tell us that they don't enjoy or aren't excited about learning about government certainly have issues they care about, right? Right. And maybe that's the front door to to deeper civic learning. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, once they start to realize, you know, I'll never forget, we had this one class, it was probably five or six years ago when we were doing the We the People competition, and this one group had war powers. And what were the appropriate um, boundaries for the executive branch on war powers? And this, this girl who just couldn't give a lick about government before spent months agonizing <laughs> over what the right answer was. And, and when we were done with the question and we were over it, 
uh, we sat down and kind of debriefed it. And she's like, I still don't know the answer. And I was like, you know, that's the, that is the power of the constitution and democracy is that we try to grope together to find out these answers. And, and, and oftentimes we shade it, right? Oftentimes we, 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 we get to a place and we're not quite sure that it's the place we should be, but we know it's within the boundaries of where it should be. And, and it can be unsatisfying, but it can also be thrilling to play a role in that. And I, I think that like a, any good civics teacher teaches the nuance of that and, and gets kids to understand that it's a lifelong project. You know, one thing I, I told her at the end was I'm still grappling with that. I still don't know what the correct boundaries are. And, and, and that changes with each presidency that comes in. <laughs> and so, um, it's, a. Uh, I, I think you can really easily create a kind of, you know, it's a cliche, but a, a real lifelong learner and a lifelong, you know, activist, meaning active, not activist per se, uh, by, by teaching it the right way. This discussion about, um, about civic engagement in the classroom and everything is such an important conversation that uh, we need to be having with uh, students. And leading to our next question, I was curious, uh, you were recently appointed to the Virginia Civics Commission. Um, can you tell us about the commission, what its objectives are, and what it's doing to promote civic learning and political engagement across the Commonwealth? Yeah, I mean, the Civics Commission's uh, kind of agenda is exactly what you would think it would be. It's to foster a knowledge and an understanding of of civics and government at the, you know, the federal level, the state level, and the local level. And it acts as kind of a conduit and as a middleman for all these different organizations that teach civics education. And so it's trying to uh, make Virginia a leader in ensuring that its students um, understand these topics. And so that, you know, that can take a, a, a whole, that can go into a whole lot of areas, um, you know, where I hope that I can maybe provide a voice and provide some momentum is, you know, I think the key to civics education is active learning. It is students engaging with the material, making up their own mind, digging deep and engaging in programs like a We the People, like a Project Citizen, um, you know, like internships at the state legislature where you're actually grappling with ideas because I think that that's what actually teaches civics and what makes people care about it. Uh, and so that's kind of the lens I want to bring to it as I start my term. But it's it's really about doing what we can to foster civics education and by bringing together as many community and educational partners as possible in that in that goal. Just as a quick follow up, are there going to be students um, or student representatives involved in the commission? You know, I, I'm not going to lie about the, the ins and outs of the day to day. I'm not 100 percent sure how they've worked in the past. Um, I would love to see that. I, I would love to see really three things. Uh, as I kind of go into it and, and knowing I'm the new guy, I'm, I'm going to take my time. But I would love to see student engagement because I think you're right. If students need a, if I'm going to talk about active learning, well, students need to actively participate. Uh, I want to see an emphasis on active education and programs that get kids acting civically. I think the best programs and the best pedagogy have students modeling the behaviors of democracy while they're learning. Uh, and I would also love to see the state be a leader, and this is maybe more of a long-term goal, of creating a kind of state hub for constitutional learning. You know, I think one of the one of the good things the federal government has done on civics education, and, and it's done a lot of negative things like cutting funding for civics education. But one thing it has done is funded the Center for the Constitution up in Philadelphia, which is a really powerful institute that is that does a lot of good things around educating uh, citizens including students on the constitution and the debates around the constitution. And I would love to see Virginia do have a, have a similar 
kind of program. It doesn't necessarily need to be its own standalone institute, but uh, a similar program where you have this kind of centralized educational authority that's talking about the state constitutional issues and talking about the state political issues and how they intertwine with these things. Uh, and so those are kind of the three things I want to bring to this commission. And, and you know, I don't know how active they've been in engaging with students in the past, but it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see as I kind of start my, my tenure. In addition to the commission, you also serve as chair of the Standards of Learning and Standards of Quality Subcommittee on the House Education Committee. I wonder how you approach building civic engagement um, into Virginia laws now as as a delegate and, and what you see on the horizon legislatively. Yeah, that's a good question. And and the, sh- the short answer is that there's no, there's no good answer to that right now in this moment. I think you know one of the conversations we've had over the last couple of years, and, and this started before I entered office, but it's really kind of taken off in the last couple of years because of uh, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, which is the, the bill that modified No Child Left Behind, is this issue of testing and how we test and, and what tests kids are held accountable to. And in Virginia, uh, we've never tested um, civics. Uh, it's never been part of the requirements for graduation. You have to take government as a 12th grader. You have to take government as an eighth grader or in middle school. Uh, as part of your kind of standards to move on and to graduate, but it's never itself been tested. And there are pros and cons to that. Um, You know, I'm not a huge fan of the standardized test model we've created over the last 20 years. Um, But if you're working within that model, the subjects that are tested tended to get more resources. And that has been to the detriment of civics and government. Uh, But as we're kind of moving into this post-testing world or this quasi-post-testing world, I think it opens up a lot of doors to uh, making civics a, a more central piece of the curriculum. Uh, we know that the standards of accreditation, you know, the standards of accreditation have the five C's and citizenship is one of them. So we're kind of in this moment where uh, there's a lot in the air and, and there's no kind of concrete uh, bills or laws around civics curriculum. But I think that's because we need to let the testing process kind of filter itself out. And so we're, we're, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what is a performance-based test? How are we going to test kids on these performance-based tests? How is that going to filter into civics? And then as one of the five C's of accreditation, citizenship, how is citizenship going to filter into other content? And so these are all open questions that we're trying to figure out and as kind of being done on the fly. And, and to be very honest with you, COVID has put a damper on and I think an unfortunate way. And so I think to kind of circle around, because I feel like I've gone in a bunch of different directions, I think step one is figuring out what this new testing regime looks like. Step two is seeing how does citizenship as one of the standards of accreditation filter into these schools and what do we see schools doing to to foster citizenship or what do we see them not doing that they should be doing? And then I think from there, we can start looking back at the curriculum we've built on civics directly, but also on other classes. Because I think, you know, I'll give you one example that stands out to me is, and this is not Virginia based, it's, it's, you know, a private entity, but college board and AP U.S. history, AP U.S. history does not do a very good job of teaching the political history of America so that when you get to AP government, a lot of the stuff you're teaching in AP government, the kids have never learned. And, I, I, you know, AP government is a history class and AP U.S. history should also be a government class because you can't teach government effectively without history. 
But I also don't think you can teach history effectively without government. And I think there's a lot of room in the Virginia curriculum to embed civics and other contents. But I think we need to wait and see how these other two things play themselves out first. So I want to talk specifically about voting. Um, I understand we have a pretty big election coming up in November. Um, Can you speak to the role that education should play in building the habits of voting and civic engagement among young people? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's 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 vital, right? Um, I think uh, I think how you how a person becomes a lifelong voter, I think, is is the product of two things. I think it's the product of their community, and by community, I mean it can be their parents, uh, but also just the value their community puts on voting. So, uh, you know, at the family level, it could be your your parents talking about the importance, or taking you to the polls, or taking you to other uh, you know political events, or, or being active and engaged at the dinner table. Uh, and at your community level, it's it's you know how does your community talk about civic engagement? Um, you know, I, I would say that in Western Henrico, where I live, we have a lot of community groups, whether they're religious or ethnic or civil or philanthropic, who really promote an active citizenry, which I think is to the benefit of our community. Um, And then the second thing is education, teaching the value of voting, teaching why it's important, teaching our history to show how voting impacted key moments in our history or how it didn't. Uh, And so uh, I think you have to have both. You have to have the community family element to it um, to, to truly get people engaged. But you also have to have the educational piece so that they understand the value. You know, I think John Lewis, who, who you know, we recently deceased and just had was just laid to rest at the Capitol yesterday is a good example of how he talks about he talks about both. Right. He talks about the value of voting as a community, but he also talks about the value of educating people on the vote. And and he made that one of his life missions as a as a congressman and as kind of post civil, you know, post civil rights activist career. One of his big focuses was going around to communities and emphasizing the historical necessity of voting. And so I think you really need both. And and I think one place where and I don't blame Virginia, I think I blame our national kind of view of civics education is that we've made civics education too passive, whether it's because we don't want teachers to seem political or we just kind of want to focus on the kind of nuts and bolts of government. So it's more important to teach the three branches than it is to teach the kind of values of citizenship. We've kind of disengaged. And I think, you know, I think that does a disservice because when you're 35 years old, not very many people remember the nuts and bolts of how the legislature works. Um, but they do remember how votes led to how the legislature acted, and they do recognize how elections impact legislatures. And so I, I think it's incumbent on us, and I think you started to see a shift in the last five to 10 years where schools and school systems are allowing for more civic engagement, whether it's voter drives, voter registration drives, or mock elections. And so yeah, I mean, education is vital and talking about voting is vital and encouraging kids to register is vital because uh, they need to see it in their community, but they also need to see it outside of their community. So is, is there a way in this environment, I and mean, we deal with this question a lot at JMU Civic, um, is there a way for us collectively, um, higher ed, K through 12, to do political learning without it being partisan learning? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think the answer is yes. Um, you, you know, I, 
I think a lot of it comes down to educating teachers and doing professional development around teachers. But I mean, kids don't expect teachers to come into the classroom and be, you know, uh, robotic automatons who who don't bring themselves into the classroom. Uh, you know, that you don't want people to come into a classroom and be a partisan hack and only present one side of a story or only present the news sources they read. You want kids to, to read and think widely. Uh, but I do think it's important to, to have those debates and have kids have those debates and, and to bring up different sides and to bring up different issues. And uh, I do think a, a very robust, active sense of civics uh, education where kids are grappling with these things and being uh, active, not just in the class, but outside the class is vitally important. I mean, are you going to have people who accuse your institution, your classroom of being political? I mean, I, I'm sure. Yeah. You, you can't please everybody all the time, but I think if you set a classroom environment of respect in a classroom and uh, environment of inquisitiveness and a classroom environment of, of constant engagement, I think you can do that. Um, you know, I think one thing that I try to always do in my classroom, I mean, every kid knows where I stand. All they have to do is go to my Twitter feed. I, I can't exactly hide behind objectivity anymore. Uh, but I think what every kid in my classroom will tell you is just when they think they have the answer, I ask them five more questions. Uh, I don't let them settle. I don't let them say that this is the right answer because I think that's, I think just think that that's democracy. There's never a right answer. You've never settled anything. We've never, you're never at a final point. There's never a victory. You've never fully won because times change. A good example of that is, is just voting rights in this country where people thought, you know, post-civil rights, we were on this kind of trajectory of, um, you know, upward swing in voter access. You know, a quick glance at history should have told us that that's not true that after bursts of um, opening up the ballot to new groups, you typically have uh, a settling back of restrictions, the late 1800s being a good example of that. Uh, but, you know, you look at from Shelby County to now, right, where all of a sudden the voting wars are contested again. And so when you have a student who comes to you and, you know, in the argument, let's say the debate is about voting rights and, and they say, well, because of all these amendments, because of this, this is the clear answer. You're not being intellectually honest with your students if you're not saying, well, what about John Roberts' argument in Shelby County? Or, or what about, you know, this law in Texas? Or what about this? Why is this wrong? And, then you know, and you just the constant kind of back and forth, I think, in the, the you know, I don't, I don't, you don't have to be an automaton. You, you can have your preferences. But if, as long as you're intellectually honest, I think we can. Uh, maybe that's naive and utopian, but uh, I think kids respect that more. I think they learn more from that. And I think it's more intellectually honest. So far, you've talked a lot about motivating um, individuals and students to engage through education and the importance of civics education and kind of reaching those motivational uh, elements to getting uh, people active um, in voting and engagement. Um, but as a delegate, you're also doing work to reduce the technical and structural barriers uh, to voting specifically. Can you talk a little bit about how Virginia took major steps forward in expanding voting access and equity in the 2020 session? And what do you think are the priorities for voting rights and access in Virginia in the 2021 session? Yeah, and that's a good pivot because, you know, we have been talking a lot about kind of these airy, you know, uh, optimistic views of, of citizenship in the classroom, all of which I believe in. But at the end of the day, 
uh, structural barriers uh, and institutional barriers um, or lack of those, right, or access to the ballot are just as important as teaching people. Because if you, you, you can limit the vote or you can expand the vote by the laws you pass, and that matters a lot too, which I think the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is kind of the perfect example of. And, um, you know, I think context matters here. Virginia has traditionally been one of the worst states on voter access in the country, and that's historically true. Uh, you know, back in the 1940s, the famous political scientist V.O. Key said that uh, Virginia made Mississippi look like a hotbed of democracy. Uh, you had like consistently through the early 20th century, you had like 10 percent of the electorate voting in elections. And that was intentional. That started with the Constitution at the beginning of the century. Uh, where they intentionally disenfranchise people. You can look at the quotes by future Senator Carter Glass, you know, kind of almost gleefully admitting that this was the goal of the Constitution. And, and so, you know, even when we changed the Constitution in 1970, we still had a lot of barriers in the way. And then in post-Shelby County, you saw uh, voter ID laws and other restrictions. And so going into this session when Democrats had a majority for the first time in a long time, uh, we were one of the harder states to vote in. And we had a lot of structural barriers. And uh, we took a lot of steps to change that this year. The kind of big ticket item was no excuse absentee voting, which was House Bill 1, which tells you how much the Democrats in the House um, prioritized voting. But, you know, it went all the way down to small bills like allowing ballots that were mailed on election day to count three days after the election, right, as long as you had mailed them the 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 day of the election to ensure that ballots were counted, even if they got delayed in the mail. And so we put in place a lot of, a lot of legislation that really opened up uh, access to the ballot, which is, I think, to, to my mind, uh, the most important thing we did, because I think the health of our democracy is, that's my dog, pardon my dog. Uh, the, the health of our democracy is the most important thing. If your democracy is healthy, everything kind of flows from that. And so it's what I'm most proud of. Uh, and being the sub-chair of the Elections Committee and some of the laws we passed were, were really exciting. Uh, moving forward, there's I, I think there's a couple things we can do. I think, I think a lot of it is going to be oversight and seeing all the changes we made, how can we tweak them to make them better? How, you know, uh, how can we ensure that uh, Virginia elect is able to run safe, secure and open uh, elections where people have access to the ballot. So I think we're going to be doing oversight of the bills we passed to ensure that they're working as they should. Uh, and then from there, I think there's a lot of tweaks we can do. So for instance, uh, we know that a lot of people are going to be doing vote by mail uh, this election because of COVID and because of the, the House Bill 1 that we passed. Well, right now, um, you can't have um, local registrars can't have uh, drop boxes where you can drop off the ballot. You either have to mail it or you have to take it directly to uh, the registrar's office. And so I'm going to put in a bill next year that would allow localities to use drop boxes that would be put on public spaces so that, you know, if you're on your way to work, you're passing the post office and there's a voter drop box, you can just drop it right there rather than mail it or rather than um, rather than take it to the registrar's office, which might be far away from your house. Uh, that's a small thing that we can do to make vote by mail more accessible to more people and to ensure more access to the ballot. So I think we'll have a lot of things like that. 
Uh, and then I continue, you know, my pre-clearance bill did not pass this year. It passed on policy, but did not get funded in the budget. And so I continue to think that in a post-Shelby County world, and until uh, Congress passes a, a new version of the Federal Voting Rights Act, I think it's very important on us to protect minority voting rights as a commonwealth. And so my pre-clearance bill would have made it so that um, localities that have the opportunity to discriminate because they've got a big enough minority voting population or have a history of discriminating would have to clear voting changes with the state. And this is, you know, it's not an adequate change because we need a a full federal voting rights act, but it is a way of trying to ensure um, that uh, the ability to vote is not infringed based on uh, race or ethnicity in the Commonwealth. And so I'll be bringing that bill back as well. So to kind of sum that up, One is we need to do oversight because we need to make sure that all the bills that we passed work as they function, because I think it's a big step. What we did pass is a big step in the right direction towards access. Um, Two, I think we need to continue to make tweaks to access to be able to expand it where possible. And I think the Dropbox legislation is a good example of that. And then uh, three, we need to continue to protect um, racial and ethnic minority voting rights. Uh, something that a lot of legislation that seeks to restrict the vote or something that a lot of registrar's actions, not even purposefully, um, have the impact of discriminating based on race, you know, where you put your precinct matters a lot. And so we want to ensure that uh, people have equal access. Delegate Van Balkenberg, you you just raised the issue of mail-in voting, and I think that's on a lot of people's minds and and how we can ensure um safe, secure elections, but also greater access, particularly in the time of COVID. And one of your bills would actually create an opt-in vote-by-mail system in Virginia. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what you think of in terms of the future of vote-by-mail in Virginia and also the benefits and drawbacks of a more expansive vote-by-mail system. Um, And also, what is Virginia doing to prepare for an increase in vote-by-mail for this year? Good questions. And, you know, I'll start with the last one first. Uh, Virginia elect is doing everything it can to, um, to make sure, and and the local registrars are doing everything that they can to make sure uh, that they can handle the capacity. Uh, In some ways we, we need the federal government to step in here. Uh, You know, uh, one thing that they passed in the original CARES Act was some money for elections, but it wasn't a lot. And hopefully in the second package, there's more money to ensure that staff have the resources that they need. Uh, but you know, we are, we are limited to just making sure that we can get the trains to run on time, that we can have the volunteers we need, we have the precincts open. And so uh, what struck me from the beginning is that the registrars in particular have been very proactive in making sure that they are ready for this. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to be New York, which in the, their recent elections had huge wait times before elections were decided because uh, it took them so long to um, count all the voting, the mail-in ballots. I don't think we're going to be New York, but I, uh, you know, it's not going to be. Um, it, it's going to have its bumps, right? It's going to, it's, 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 it's going to take some time to get through all the ballots. I think some of the bills we passed, like allowing ballots to come in three days late and still be counted, are going to help. Um, but it, it's we're kind of in an unknown world, and that's just a reality. Um, you know, as to mail voting, we can kind of go one of two ways in Virginia. 
uh, as I see it. We can keep the current system, which we, we essentially created this year. And that current system is no excuse absentee voting. Uh, with my bill going into effect next July, that would allow you to opt in to being a permanent mail voter. Uh, if we keep that system, we would be, you know, you could eventually see a world in which we kind of just in the nat the natural progression of things become a majority vote by mail state, but it would only be because people chose that, right? So uh, people decided to um, ask for an absentee ballot this year and they say, hey, I like that a lot. Um, so I'm going to do that every year. So they sign up to be a, a absentee voter every year through my you know, the policy that's allowed because of my bill or more people realize they can do it. So they just start uh, asking for absentee ballots every year. And we could get to a world in which you see, you know, uh, somewhere between a strong minority, say 40% to maybe a 60% majority vote by mail just because they can. Uh, and because it's been built up over time and because they see the value in doing it. Uh, and we could stay in that system uh, forever. And if we're in that system, it will be incumbent upon the legislature to pass the tweaks that make it more effective, right? So drop boxes or simplifying the absentee ballot form, as, which is, I think, something that we need to do, or um, creating more ways uh, to um, get out the educational information about absentee voting. Uh, and it would be just incumbent on us to, to make that process as painless as possible. The second way we can go is we can go to a pure vote by mail system like you see in Colorado, Washington, Utah, California. Um, a lot of those states started on a model that we're in. So they started with some mail voting. You could opt in. Um, you could do it no excuse. And what they saw is that over time, as more and more people did it, it just made sense financially and it made sense because the majority had bought into it to switch to all mail voting. And that's certainly a way we could go too. now the the if we do that, that's going to require some big shifts in how we run elections. It's going to require uh, a lot of new resources we don't have. Uh, it would be expensive on the front end, uh, but it has been proven also to save you money on the back end. Uh, it makes elections cheaper to run. And so I think those are the two models that we have open to us. The current model, which was created as of July 1, uh, that can allow for a robust vote by mail, but it's kind of up to the individual voter, or we could move to an all-mail voting system. I, I will say that I'm very agnostic on, um, on these two. I see a lot of value to a universal mail system, uh, but I also think that the system that we're currently within, you can make work well for, for all voters as well. And I think it really is going to come down to how people decide to vote. I think we, if we see a lot of people saying, you know what, I like this mail voting, and we start to see the numbers consistently creep up over 50% of people voting by mail, I think it might at that point make sense to switch to a universal mail system because most people are doing it, because it's... Um, less expensive. If we do that, we're then going to have to have a conversation about, okay, well, all universal vote by mail systems still allow you to vote in person. And so we would have to ensure that we do that in an equitable way so that all communities still have access to vote by mail, or I'm sorry, vote in person. And so that's kind of the lay of the land uh, in terms of, of, of what we could do um, and where we could go. Yeah, it's certainly a really important discussion um, to be having um, about vote by mail. I know this year, a lot of people will be use, utilizing vote by mail that uh, likely have never done it before. So it'll be definitely something to keep an eye on um, across the state. 
Um, thank you for that discussion. I wanted to shift um, now to um, a question about an issue that's becoming extremely important um, in Virginia and has been has been hotly discussed for uh, several years now, but that's re- redistricting reform. Um, this uh, the past two years, uh, the General Assembly has passed um, a constitutional amendment to create a bipartisan commission um, to uh, to redraw the lines after the 2020 census um, during debates that that um, commission uh, definitely changed a lot in terms of how it was created. But you sponsored um, the amendment um, to make that uh, a possibility. But it's become very hotly contested in the Democratic Party um, and with a lot of discussion about the protections for communities of color. Um, but that that commission will be up um, in front of voters this November um, on the ballot. What would you say um, to voters that will be deciding um, deciding on redistricting this November? Yeah, I, I did. I, I carried the amendment and I carried the enabling legislation that, that went with the amendment. And I'm uh, a, su- a supporter of the amendment, a strong supporter of the amendment. Um, and I, And I have been for the last two years. And I think you know, uh, the, the short answer to your question, which I'll give you first, is that this amendment would provide for citizen participation in the redistricting process. It would provide for increased transparency in the redistricting process, which I think is incredibly important for drawing fairer maps. Um, it has protection uh, protections for ethnic and racial ethnic and racial minority voters. Uh, both protections in the 14th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act, but it also goes beyond that and says that where practicable, uh, ethnic and racial minorities may choose a candidate of their choice, uh, which is a pretty strong sentence uh, that dictates how they will have to draw the lines, especially along the urban crescent. Uh, And so I think those three things um, are going to lead to fairer maps Uh, They are going to lead to more competition and they are going to therefore lead to a better democracy. I mean, I see this, my my worldview on this is that I think we should be doing everything we can to make it so that people can vote and we should be able, we should be doing everything we can to make it so that their vote matters. And so um, I think it's incredibly important that we pass legislation that makes it so that people can vote and have access to the vote. And I think it's incredibly important we do what we can to make sure that the districts that they're voting in uh, matter and that their voice is heard um, because the more competitive the election, the more uh, their delegate or senator has to be engaged in the community and listening to their voices. And so I think that's the short answer. Uh, you know, this amendment came out of a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, discussion, uh, came out of a lot of compromise. It was a part of the democratic process. Uh, there was two years ago, three different amendments. There was the kind of independent commission version that was uh, carried by Emmett Hanger in the Senate and uh, in the House. I can't remember who carried it off the top of my head. I want to say Mark Sickles. Uh, that was the kind of ideal one Virginia 2021 amendment. There was uh, Mark Cole's amendment, which was kind of gerrymandering by another name, although they called it uh, redistricting reform. And then there was the kind of compromise amendment, if you will, which was put forward by Dick Saslaw and George Barker, Democrats in the Senate. And it's that version that ultimately got through. 
And, you know, there are some people who are against it because it's not an independent commission because uh, it, it does have legislators on it. Uh, but I think and, and I think that that's a valid issue, whether or not it should be an independent commission or a bipartisan commission. I will say, though, that I think the more important measures are the transparency measures and the kind of process you take to get to the maps. Uh, I think that those do more to create fairer maps than whether it's bipartisan or independent. Uh, and either an independent commission or a bipartisan commission, you're still going to have a bipartisan commission uh, if you want to make it so that both sides have a seat at the table so that it's so that it's redistricting reform. And I think the transparency piece, I think having citizens engaged, and I think the steps you take to get there make the amendment worth passing. We um, We appreciate this conversation so much. There is a we ask of all of our guests. Um, can you tell us the name of your dog, please? <laughs> Baxter. He's a 90-pound Pipple Mastiff mix, and so when he barks, it's very loud. I picked up on that he was not a poodle, but I couldn't <laughs> read by the sound of the bark. <laughs> so Pitbull and Mastiff? Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. We, um, we, we do... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we, no, we, you're also, good. You're good. we do editing. <laughs> um, we, we, we have a final question that we ask yeah. all of our guests. And, and, and I feel like this entire conversation addresses this question, um, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Uh, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? <sighs> if, I could wave, if I could wave my wand, what would I do to, to um, protect democracy? I, I, I am handing you a wand as we speak. Uh, you know, I think we're in a very, we're in a very real moment where, uh, we have a, a lot of people, including the president of our country, questioning long held democratic norms, uh, that are, that is, in, I think should be incredibly scary to people. I mean, norms can, norms should sometimes be broken. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but the, the constant bombardment, uh, of our constitution as, as something that's scary and I think one of the real reasons that's been allowed to happen is because our, our federal Congress has stopped um, has stopped functioning in the way that people think it should. And so I'm going to give an answer that maybe you wouldn't expect because I, I could rehash everything I've already said, which I, I do believe. But I think we really need a Senate that functions. We need a Congress that does its job. And I mean that both in terms of big legislation, passing the things that we know we need, uh, like, for instance, a second COVID bill that is currently being held up in the Senate, but also the small things, you know, uh, revising laws, pushing back against the president um, when they, they think that they're acting extra constitutionally or they think that they're promoting bad policies. And so I would love to see rules changes in the Senate that foster um, a sense of getting things done. So I would love to see the filibuster be abolished. Um, and I would love to see some of these rules that allow individual senators to hold up nominations and laws be uh, gotten rid of, because I think that um, what that has done, you know, maybe back in the 1950s, although I just I don't think this is true, because in the 1950s, the filibuster was used to stop civil rights legislation. Uh, you could maybe have plausibly argued that it gave the minority a voice uh, in the early 20th century. But now it's just being used to prevent things from being done. And I think what that ends up doing is it ends up radicalizing both parties. It ends up radicalizing the public at large. And it ends up hurting our kind of constitutional infrastructure, you know, uh, the three branches, federalism. And so 
I, uh, I would love to see Congress work again. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't work is because of the rules they've created. And unfortunately, they get to create the rules constitutionally without anybody else having a say so. And so I would love to see them reform themselves because I do think that the biggest threat to democracy and the biggest threat to our constitution right now is a Congress that doesn't function. Delegate Van Valkenburg, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thanks for having me, this was fun. <laughs>